today I want to do things a little bit differently. Even though there are some new faces, there's lots of people who have been involved with this series from the beginning, and I want to move through the conversation, the presentation, quickly to get to the conversation part um, as fast as we can, because I think there are issues that will address this broader question of fundamentalism, theocracy, and the relationship of religion to state power, but in particular how that relates to Israel. I know that um, some of you went on the uh, trip with Ari, I, when you guys were there, how many people were on that trip? And like the, okay, so we have a crew of you who are there who had an interesting opportunity to be involved in some of that. Um, I know that Gaila Wilner was telling me that she, she, she went and had an aliyah with Women of the Wall when they snuck the little Torah in, which is really interesting. Oh, were you? Oh, terrific. All right, so we, we, we have political dissidents in our midst um, who braved the threat of arrest. But I'm not kidding, right? It was the threat of arrest. Uh, this is an interesting phenomenon. So how, how do we get there? How do we end up in this kind of situation? And we've discussed this question of fundamentalism and the dream of theocracy in, in the modern world. And one of the things that um, is similar about various kinds of religious fundamentalism across the religions in the West of Islam, Judaism, and Christianity is a dissatisfaction with living under a, the regime of a secular state. That secular democracy and the principle of laws that are simply the expression of communal will, they are constructed by humans for human purposes, rather than laws that are an expression of divine will, that they are put in place by God through a mechanism of revelation and religious authority that translates that revelation into government policy. That's what a lot of terrorism, violence, and conflicts with religion and the state is centering around today. Do you want to live in a secular democracy where the laws are about the practical needs of the people in the community? Or does one wish to live in a divine theocracy, a state in which the laws of the state are in some ways understood to be the reflection of divine will and not democratic will? And for those who aspire to live in a theocracy, the secular state is a kind of enemy, and attempts to struggle with the state take many forms. One form, of course, is the symbolic violence that we find with religious terrorism. Another form, though, is political activism, and one of the ways of trying to move society in the direction of its resacralization, this idea that society used to be sacred, was desacralized by the advent of secular democracy, and then they aspire to resacralize the state through a transformation of the state into, a, into a, a godly theocracy is to nudge it in that direction by involving religion in the state incrementally, having some degree of connection of religious authority to the, the workings of the state. These strategies play out sometimes in parallel um, and, and sometimes as just different approaches to the struggle with secular democracy. Today there was a, a, a terrible, terrible example of this in France. Um, where there's a horrible massacre. And it is very in keeping with the kind of pattern that we've talked about, the idea that the notion of the secular state and the freedoms that are celebrated by the secular state is an affront to God. And those who configure their identity as soldiers for God on the forefront of a change in society to transform the state into a godly thing, they are endowed with this right to kill people in order to demonstrate how evil the state is. And Charlie Hebdo in, in, in France, this was a, a, a satirical publication. 
and it was a, an expression symbolically of the the ideals of the state that nothing is 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 above criticism that people are free to express their views and that the state ought to protect that freedom right this is basic to the notion of of a secular democracy and it's a serious affront to those who regard secular democracy as essentially the enemy of God's will being made manifest on earth. And so those who go and commit a massacre there feel quite justified. In fact, they feel heroic. And it seems to them and to their supporters that what they're doing is supporting what God would want, which is an attack on the secular state. But they don't go to attack the police or, 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 or the military in this particular case. It's just as meaningful, arguably more meaningful, to attack a publication that lampoons religious authority along with every other sort of authority. The ultimate act of irreverence, contemporary satire, is a celebration of secular freedom. In fact, that's what makes those kinds of things possible. They're part of the expression of the secular state itself. And so the, and this particular publication had once affronted the prophet Muhammad, and so the revenge that is taken is it's a real act of violence that has symbolic meaning as a rejection of the secular state. So what are some of the ways that um, religious authorities have sought to try to move the secular state or at least the non-religious state in the direction of the godly or the holy? How do they try to utilize state power for religious purposes? Um, rabbinic authorities, of course, in the pre-modern world had some forms of authority that were granted to them by the government in that it was their job to administer the internal affairs of Jewish communities. And in some cases, uh, especially in Eastern Europe, these became officially recognized government positions since rabbis were in charge of things like family law, they were in charge of social welfare institutions for Jews. That, and this was their job, was to take care of these questions for the Jewish community on behalf of the government. And some of the rabbinical uh, authorities became quite large, like the Council of the Four Lands, and, and they had fairly extensive powers that were in part granted to them by the government. But one of the things that we see is that a lot of resentment is developed around the sort of rejection of or struggle with rabbinic power in those circumstances. This was not an uncontested form of power, even though it was in part uh, granted to them by the government. And we also find that when there are official religious parties who have some subset of duties to perform on behalf of the government, the government becomes fairly involved, intrusive even, in the selection of who those rabbis or priests or whomever ought to be because they want to have the right one in place to do their bidding. The purpose of having an officially state-sanctioned religious authority is that they will select the right one to do the thing that the state wants. What appears to be a kind of empowered religious authority is actually this arrangement between religion and the state wherein the element of the religion that will do the bidding of the state is selected to essentially be the state's lackey. And this becomes the dynamic that people within the religious community then start to resist. Um, there's an interesting example of this in the American history, which was the Jewish Welfare Board. Um, it was the 
agency from the Jewish community in the United States in the early part of the 20th century that was selected to provide welfare services to Jewish soldiers. Um, so this would be all the sort of social religious services that were provided to Jewish soldiers in World War I. Um, I. I know a lot about the Jewish Welfare Board because I'm actually married to the only authority in the world on this subject, my wife, who's writing a book, her dissertation on this, and she's, and she's writing a book now on the Jewish Welfare Board, and she's done a tremendous amount of archive research and has discovered some really amazing things about what the Jewish Welfare, Welfare Board did in World War I. Um, it, it, World War I, after the, the campaigns in Mexico and elsewhere, the government realized they had a problem, which is that they needed wholesome soldiers. And the reason why you need wholesome soldiers is because if you don't have someone kind of like keeping them in check, uh, reinforcing to them the proper values that they ought to have, um, maybe keeping them from getting too bored and getting too lonely. The, the problem is essentially venereal disease. Um, the, and, and it was a serious problem. At some points, 10% uh, of the army's fighting capacity would be diminished because of VD. And so the, they, they wanted to keep men away from alcohol, keep them away from brothels, and they realized that when they had military bases, uh, that where men, when they were on, on leave, could just go do whatever they want, that this became a, a great way to sell lots and lots of alcohol and prostitution, and it caused all kinds of problems with the fighting efficiency of that force. So they said, we need to outsource some of the soldiers' welfare services to religious organizations. And so in the buildup the, for the development of the expeditionary force in World War I, um, the Commissioner Baker of the, of the War Department decided it was, it was a good idea to uh, find a religious organization that would provide wholesome soldier services on base and, and abroad. And they, they selected the YMCA. And they thought, well, this will be a, a kind of non-denominational uh, provision of welfare services. And the YMCA said, yes, absolutely. We can, we can uh, cater to, to Catholics and, and, and to Jews, no problem. For instance, they, they, they printed a Yiddish uh, New Testament uh, <laughs> right? and it, 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 it was a big problem. And it turns out Catholics and the Knights of Columbus and Jews, they were not okay with this. And, and the government was saying, well, you don't, you don't think the YMCA is non-denominational? They said, well, no, they only have Protestants on their board. And their understanding of their mission is to disciple as many soldiers as possible to, to, to accept their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So no, this isn't going to work. And the Catholics were basically as upset about this as the Jews. But there were more than a quarter million Jews who were suddenly enlisted in the military. And it had a, a distinct set of challenges. They had a diverse range of religious needs. They also needed to be Americanized. America was still a largely immigrant community in the buildup to World War I. So they needed soldiers' welfare services that, that would acclimate soldiers to the American way. And for Jews, this was a problem. Many of them only spoke Yiddish. They needed someone who could help bring them into a kind of vision of American democracy. But with their progressive ideals, also about clean living, they needed someone who would help them be masculine, but also chaste and ready to fight. And the, what ended up happening was the Knights of Columbus became selected to administer to Catholics, and the Jewish Welfare Board was selected by the government to administer to Jews. Notice, they were not selected by the Jewish community. These agencies were selected by the government, and they were selected because they put forth a certain image of their religious community that fit with what the government was looking for. People who will advocate democracy, 
people who will talk about religion, yet also freedom, people who will talk about the distinctiveness of their traditions as a form of unity among all of the fighting men, and chaplains who would cut the right image. They had to be masculine. And there's lots of interesting letters back and forth as the Jewish Welfare Board is selecting the right kind of chap to be a chaplain, and they, it meant a certain masculinity, and they ended up going with what was basically a kind of combination of, of reform and conservative rabbis. Uh, the orthodox ones were considered not masculine in the right way, and the liberal ones were not masculine in the right way. They had to be a, the right kind of soldier, the right kind of chaplain. And the idea was that they were going to engineer a generation of American Jewry. Now, this led to a lot of resentment in the Jewish community. We find the socialists didn't like them because they were, they were, they were too religious. We find that the, the, the Orthodox didn't like them because they didn't fight for certain policies. So they fought, for instance, to have separate Jew, Jewish welfare board huts where Jews could uh, gather, they could, they could uh, write letters home, they, they could pray, um, but they, they didn't fight for a separate kosher food system within the military, which would have been really, really difficult, um, and basically said, no, there's a halachic dispensation during wartime, so it's okay, they can just eat with the rest of the soldiers. And some of the Orthodox families really didn't like this, and they had no recourse to change it, none, because the only, only agency that could work with the government was the Jewish Welfare Board. And so they were, they were resented when the socialists uh, spoke out against the Jewish Welfare Board, that was okay. The Jewish Welfare Board had the government shut down their newspaper, right? They could, they could use state power. And what they wanted to do was to create a centralized rabbinical authority that would ultimately be kind of the chief rabbinate of America. And what's interesting is in some ways they had an impact, but not the ones they wanted. Their attempt to have a chief rabbinate of America completely failed. Uh, my wife puts it that trying to have a centralized rabbinic authority um, generally, but in particular within the free, open, democratic society of the United States was like herding cats, um, which generally is the problem with uh, having centralized rabbinic authorities. But they, they did do some pretty impressive things. In this one moment where the separation of church and state functions somewhat differently, which is the selective outsourcing of soldiers' welfare services during wartime, to religious agencies, but exclusively to a particular religious agency, it had the effect of giving Jews a place at the table. By the end of World War I, not World War II as it's typically thought, America was a tri-faith nation, a Protestant, Catholic, and Jew. And even though Jews were a small portion of the population, though overrepresented among those who volunteered to fight in World War I, um, this led to this notion that America is a nation of three faiths. And it became encoded in government and military policy first before it became a broadly held notion within the culture. So these movements or transformations of military policy actually have real implications for the place of religious communities outside of military life in the years after the war. That was very important. Jews also essentially created the USO because the USO is non-denominational in, in a real sense of being non-denominational, not the what my wife calls the invisible, invisible sectarianism of, of movements like the, uh, the, the YMCA. The USO is this thing where it provides soldier services for everyone. But the Jewish Welfare Board was hated. It was resented by the Jewish community, and it was unable outside of the conditions of wartime, where they had an exclusive contract with the government, it was utterly unable to form a centralized rabbinical authority that spoke for America's Jews and spoke to America's Jews. The, and the, the, the absolute failure 
of that attempt says a lot about the diversity of the American community, and it also says a lot about whose views were not represented when the Jewish Welfare Board was the exclusive agency working with Jewish soldiers during wartime. Uh, so th this is a, a really an interesting phenomenon and one that shows a lot uh, about what was going on in America at the time, but it's in indicative of a dynamic throughout Jewish history and actually throughout religious history that the selective uh, granting of government power by the government tends to serve the government's needs and tends not to serve the religion's needs. When we find these two being fused, what typically happens is that it ends up being very bad for the religious community in question. So now if we look at what happened in Palestine under Ottoman rule, um, the Ottomans had to control a fairly diverse, religiously diverse community. And it wasn't really possible for them to deal with all of the internal religious dynamics of the Muslim, Christian, and Jewish communities. And so they had what was, it was called a millet system. Um, it's a kind of pre-modern religious pluralism, but one that gave power very selectively to different religious communities. And there's this kind of government power that's then given to Jewish, Christian, and Muslim authorities, and it's an illusion of power. It, it, it provides this sense that the religion now has been given power by the government to manage its own affairs. However, what do we mean when we say the religion? Religions are diverse things, and some subset of that religion ends up having government power to force their views onto the entire community. And this serves the government's interests because it deals with the internal questions of that religious community and it does it in a way that solves a problem that the government doesn't want to deal with directly, which is how do they keep the Jews, Christians, and Muslims from fighting with each other and keep them under control without the government looking like they are restricting the rights of those communities? And the answer is have someone from those communities do it for you. And, and this is how that functioned. It keeps the masses under control. Now, first in the system in Palestine, there was only actually a Sephardic chief rabbi. He was the Rishon Litzion. Um, but under British rule in the 1900s, this led to a different system of an Ashkenazi and a Sephardi uh, chief rabbi. So now what we have is an Ashkenazi and Sephardi chief rabbi. They're elected for 10-year terms. And they change the sort of who has the absolute lead every six months. Um, it's under the auspices of the Ministry of Religious Services in Israel, which um, manages on the part of religious communities all kinds of things, um, including within the Jewish community under the chief Israeli rabbinate uh, and the, the many functionaries within the Israeli rabbinate. Um, one of the, th of the powers that they have, one of the most important is they manage marriage and divorce. But they also manage issues of status, namely who is a Jew or who is not. This then relates to immigration, who has the right of aliyah and who does not. Kashrut as well. The Israeli rabbinate gives out the Teuda Kashrut or the certificate of Kashrut certification. Um, they manage the ordination of rabbis who have rabbinical authority according to the rabbinut or smicha as it's called. They manage burial. They manage conversion. They also administer holy sites, in particular the subgroup that administers the Western Wall. 
Um, they run courts that manage certain types of claims or issues of marriage, divorce, inheritance, and child custody in rabbinic courts that have a parallel authority to the secular courts. And they manage yeshivot and kolels. To some extent, and this is also under the Ministry of, of, of Religious Affairs, the, a kolel is a, a communal Jewish learning group where young men go and they, they study full-time and are paid a stipend from the yeshiva, which ultimately comes from allocations from the state. And as that community has grown exponentially in recent decades, the amount of money that then goes to that community through that mechanism is very, very substantial. Um, this leads, of course, to all kinds of dissatisfaction with the religious services that are provided in Israel on the part of many Israelis. So currently today, 12% of, of Israelis leave Israel. They leave the country in order to get married. This is why the island of Cyprus is called the island of love for Israelis. Because if you want to have a marriage ceremony that is not managed by the state, you have to leave. And currently... And this isn't necessarily a permanent law, but currently Israel will recognize marriages from some authority outside of the state. But within the state of Israel, Jewish marriages have to be run and organized and, and approved by the Rabbanut, which means both people must be Jewish. It means the person who performs the ceremony must be the rabbi of the locality where that person lives. So the rabbi who is under the organization of the Rabbanut, and there was recently a lot of agitation to change this so that they could select any rabbi they want from within the state, so they might find a more liberal one. Uh, but if you live in a place with a, 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 I mean, more liberal within the spectrum of the Rabbanut, um, but the, if, you, if you have to work with your local rabbi, that means you have to work with the rabbi from the Rabbanut who considers you to be Jewish, and that's sometimes very hard to prove, considers your spouse to be Jewish, and is willing then to perform a particular kind of ceremony that is approved by the Rabbanut with an authority who is a member of the Rabbanut. Um, people leave, they leave Israel if they want to function outside of those constraints. Um, the Western Wall is another example of where rabbinical authority um, has particular teeth, and that is the management of the kinds of ceremonies that are allowed at the wall, um, in particular what's allowed on the women's side of the wall. This has led to, Amnat uh, Hoffman has been a leader in this and has led to a lot of well-known um, well controversies. In fact, these kinds of things, we'll get to this, especially with people in this room who've been involved with that, these kind of controversies have led to a lot of dissatisfaction in Israel. According to a recent poll, this is a 2014 poll, the chief rabbinate has a, an approval rating of 29%. 66% um, of Israeli Jews and 74% of non-Haredi Israeli Jews support the recognition of civil marriage and non-Orthodox marriages. It also means that 26% um, of, uh, of, of Haredi Jews also uh, think that, that civil marriages and non-Orthodox marriages should be recognized. 61% um, of Israeli Jews believe that ultra-Orthodox conscription, conscription laws, meaning the ultra-Orthodox Jews who don't serve in the army, that these new laws passed this year probably will not succeed in having any significant impact on the number of yeshiva students who serve in the army. 71% of Israeli Jews are not pleased with the chief rabbinate, including 89% of secular Israelis, 80% of immigrants, and 61% of traditional Israeli Jews disapprove in some way, according to this poll, of, of how the rabbinate functions. 70% of Israeli Jews support the uh, idea that there should be some form of public transportation on Shabbat. 
65% of Israeli Jews and 85% of Jewish Tel Aviv residents support allowing small markets and convenience stores to remain open on Shabbat. These things are illegal. Um, also at issue is the curricula of Haredi schools, which while they, there is a certain idea of having a secular curriculum that uh, teaches a certain basic education in Israel, this isn't really followed, and many Haredi schools actually don't prepare, intentionally don't prepare their students for either citizenship in the secular state of Israel or gainful employment. Um, so this is, uh, this, this is uh, uh, definitely an issue. But I think that one of the biggest causes of the dissatisfaction with the Israeli rabbinate is the coercive policies that the rabbinate utilizes to control people's behavior. So they have the power to bring in the state, the police or the military, to enforce their will, literally arresting women for reading Torah. Right, that happens at the Western Wall. Or we find other forms of coercion. Um, there's the use of kashrut to change how hotels and other businesses operate. So they have new policies for what is necessary in order to have kashrut certification from the rabbinut. And one is that there can't be any recognition of or discussion of Christian holidays of any form in a public place where kosher food certification is offered by the rabbinut. So you have all of these hotels that essentially cater to Christian uh, um, visitors to the Holy Land for Christian holidays. And it's a, it's a huge part um, of the, the Israeli economy, especially in Jerusalem, actually. Last time I was there, I was talking to uh, my favorite potter in the, the Armenian quarter, George Sanjuni, um, who's a, a, a Armenian, he's Christian, and he, he was talking about the, the, the new... Um, passport policies that were enacted that allowed Russians to come in for a certain number of days. And so these cruise ships would come in and disgorge these thousands and thousands of, of Russian Christian pilgrims to the Holy Land. And they come to Jerusalem and just like spend tons of money and leave. And he said, it's been great. Like business has never been better. And that uh, Christian tourism is, a, is very powerful in Israel. Have you ever been to the place where everyone does the, the, the um, uh, uh, baptisms in the Jordan? It's a, this is a, 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 a very functional business. And so there's a lot of reasons why uh, there are some hotels might want to, I don't know, have a Christmas tree or talk, say something about Christmas and have a promotion. Not if you want to be kosher, according to the Rabbanut, right? So these are, these are forms of coercion, uh, both substantial and petty. Um, but of course, another really serious one is a law recently passed that people who perform, especially rabbis who perform weddings, that are not in keeping with the laws of the Rabbanut and are not rabbis who are ordained by the Rabbanut. So let's say a modern Orthodox Kippah Sruga rabbi who wants to do some sort of non-Rabbanut wedding um, or someone who is conservative or reform or reconstructionist, forget it. The, the idea is not only is it not permitted and not recognized, it's that a rabbi who performs such a wedding can be subject to a two-year prison term. Right, so I think it, it is, it's worth considering that these problems are entirely predictable. And if we think back to Yeshayahu Leibowitz, who was mentioned last time, uh, Dr. Wilner's teacher uh, in organic chemistry, but nonetheless, um, who was a very interesting visionary in Israel, he said in the 1960s and 70s that Israel faces the potential of becoming a fascist state as all religious states do 
because the, the, the unkept secret about any religious state is that it means giving government authority to some carefully selected subset of the enormously diverse range of, of religious views that are present in every religious community on earth. And that means that religious states are by definition fascist states, meaning they have to use a non-representative and coercive mechanism of government control in order to have the state remain stable because it will only be representing the views of maybe 10% of the population, and it leads to tremendous resentment. And in order for the policies of a religious state to be followed, it is necessary to be coercive over that population. And this incremental movement towards a torocracy in Israel creates a really, really sad phenomenon, which is that it becomes one of the states in the world, despite being Israel, where Jews can be imprisoned for practicing their own religious freedom. And that is a dynamic that is not unique to Israel. It's a dynamic that is representative of trends in fundamentalism today. It's a struggle that I think is going to define the 21st century, which is how do we manage the very different expectations of what a government provides between those who want a theocracy and those who want the chaotic but open freedom of a secular democracy. So I want to hear your thoughts about this. I want to sort of engage in a conversation about this for the next 20 minutes or so, since we've had three classes to discuss this, and it sounds like we've had people who've been involved very intimately with some of these questions in Israel, um, where the problem is, is, is actually getting, getting worse as time goes on. Yes. Um, you have, oh, first, just a personal note. Yeah, I was in Israel. We, it was on our itinerary with our trip to go to the hotel, and we didn't know when we planned it, when we, you know, as we were walking down there, that it, we were present for the first Batman at the hotel. With the little Torah, right? Yes. With the little Torah. Yeah, yeah the, the other Torah got taken in the... Yeah. yeah, yeah. Good for them. Um, but I just, uh, this is just a comment on a personal note. I faced all these issues because my daughter, um, um, God forbid her mother was married by a reform rabbi, so I couldn't, she, she got married in Israel. And I could produce only a reformed ketubah. She called me up, long, long story that I won't go into, but she called me up in tears a week before the wedding. Mom, I'm not going to be able to get married. It was this horrendous experience. I was humiliated by a rabbi here. who I had to prove I was Jewish. And my grandparents were called seen. Anyway, it's, it's not fun to live through this. Um, but can, you didn't talk about the gap. Um, well, the issue of Gitin is a, a, a whole other serious problem, right? They manage marriage and they manage divorce. Um, and, and divorce can become as serious or worse of a problem than, 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 than marriage. People end up stuck in all kinds of circumstances with no recourse except to the rabbinu, the local rabbi, which means you're, you're very beholden to whatever will be the views and demands of that rabbi, and there's no one to help you. And, and this puts women in particular in an untenable position in some circumstances, um, as well as women, for instance, who want to practice religious freedom at the Kotel, they can be arrested. Um, or rabbis who want to marry people who want to get married in whatever fashion they wish, Jewishly, and go to prison. Right? This, this is what we expect from religious states. Yes? Um, I have a, a, a grandson who is religious, who is in the army in Israel, and his job is managing other religious people who come into the army, so sounds like a very modern person, and that's how he describes himself. Yet when I wrote a book that discussed uh, uh, 
divorce in Israel, not exactly complimentary. He took the book to his rabbi to see if he could read it. <laughs> so Did he say yes or no? No, his rabbi said no. Uh, and it's, a, it's, it's fiction. I mean, it's a novel. So you were banned from your son's <laughs> library. Look at that. My grandson. Your grandson. And library. my daughter, and my granddaughter, who said, Grandma, it, it's not as pastnished in Yiddish, if anybody speaks <laughs> Yiddish. Um, and I find the whole thing, I mean, I, I, when I wrote it, I said, oh, a couple of people in the family are really going to be pissed about this one. But I could not quite believe that my granddaughter, who's read everything in the world, said, can't read this. And so even though they're modern orthodox, you know, which means she wears long skirts and sandals rather than <laughs> stockings, I mean, there's every gradation. They live in Israel on the western on the uh, over the Green Line, so they're very much the um, sailors, you know, the pioneers. Would Sad not course. read a book because their rabbi said no. And and while they would come out on the part of the spectrum where they'll serve the army, right? They're they're yes, they're not in the dissidents army in that respect. And and but they they support the rabbinut, right? Or or, or the, that there should be some authority for the rabbinut. Well, they were married in Canada by a an approved rabbi. It's a short list. Of rabbis who are approved to uh, to perform marriages recognized in Israel, or a very short list is rabbis um, who are approved in the United States to perform conversions. And they have three generations of approved ketubah. How many of us have that kind of document? Yeah, we have, but we have them. And yeah. and this this is the the real question is the the you, you both have the coercive control of the state that does things that prevent the religious freedoms of Jews in Israel. And you also have a state that has moved very far from being connected to the vast majority of Jews of the diaspora. Uh, from the perspective of the Rabbanu, many of us are, are, are not Jews, are not well, worthy did, to live in Israel. They did say to us that the rabbi who married my husband and I in 63 would not now be approved. But since he was dead, it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> the old Louis Burkle, okay, the new one, not so much. Um, yes. I want to go back to the beginning of your lecture today, in which you said that you had a fundamentalist group that want to create a theocracy versus a, a democratic society. But does that mean that one system has to encroach on the other? I mean, like the uh, democratic is start to attack uh, Muhammad, which I wouldn't attack anyhow, but uh, and just keep. Is anybody attacking, you are from Pennsylvania, is anybody attacking the Amish? Anybody encroaching on, I don't know, maybe they do. I, and this, yeah. and I, let me just make a comment. The, also, this is a, the problem of Israel is that theocracy there does not want to be on its own. It, the whole land should be like that because we have a contract. I used to be, uh, when we lived back east, I was a member of, many times of called to be part of a Bedin. And to deliver a divorce uh, uh, get. And that get was written according to the ultra-Orthodox. Why? Because maybe in Israel, if that yeah. person had gone, so that he is properly Israeli's uh, orthodoxy divorce. Yeah, you want to be Yotze and Yotze when it comes to, right? right. You want to be within there the law. There will be no problem. But I think with this question of conflict, it's because there's two basic directions that religious fundamentalism has taken in the modern world. One is to withdraw from it, 
to retreat from it and let, let the rest of the world do what it wants and try to create their own insulated community. And the other is to engage in it and try to transform it or conquer. So it's withdraw or conquer. So in the United States, there's not a lot of conflict between the secular state and say the Amish or Hasidim, except on certain minor issues. But it's not a fundamental conflict because this, the this Amish or Hasidic communities don't seek to transform the state. They're happy to let Americans eat lobsters and drive on Saturday. They don't care about any of these things. They just want to have their own internal community where they are left alone. Um, in fact, that is ultimately a very pluralistic move, and it's one that thrives in a pluralistic democracy. So because of, 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 of the secular democratic nature of the United States, the Amish can kind of function as they wish to function with certain issues about family law, public health, education, um, aside, they, they are able to basically be left alone. Same thing with, with Hasidim in, in, in Brooklyn and elsewhere, right? Like Borough Park is fine in a secular democracy. The, the, where you have a real conflict is when you have um, theocrats and secular democrats in the same environment where both believe that the territory in which they live is one where their view of life should be represented in the government. So in the case of American theocrats versus American democrats, right, the people want a Christian nation versus a secular democratic one, that, that's, a, that's a very deep conflict. And, and those are inherently ideologically opposed. And in Israel, we see this in a, in a manner very close to home. Those who want a torocracy want it to be illegal for people to violate the Sabbath or violate kashrut or violate marriage laws um, they want there to be a rabbinic authority that has the full power of the state behind it and the power of the police and the military to enforce their will. Ultimately, they would like to get rid of, they like to scrap democracy and have Israel be a full-on torocracy. And these are incompatible view worldviews. They actually are inherently an ideological clash. And I think that ideological clash will be at the heart of many of the violent conflicts of the 21st century. Yeah, yes, on that cheery note. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> um, I want to go back to, uh, to the, the premise that you started with, which is that it seems to be inevitable that when the religious uh, parties start to get involved in the government that it will end up like it is in Israel now, where you know it ends up badly for the religion. But I'm wondering if this is not in Israel, an artifact of the secular political fragmentation and the resulting undue influence that religious parties have on the ultimate control of certain ministries of the government. Like the Vod HaKasafim. Right, the, through the, the formation of coalitions and the price that they demand for building yeah. a coalition. And if the Israeli secular system were more like the American system where they just had two big parties and nobody else, you wouldn't see this. They wouldn't have the same influence, right? Which is why America is a more secular, secular democracy. Um, but it's, an, it's a vestige also of the Ottoman and British systems where there were these selective uh, grantings of, of government power to religious communities in order to get them to do the government's bidding. There potentially, because you have 15% or more of the population that is Haredi or Haredi friendly, um, there, there would be a lot of conflict over how the power of the state would be used. This, I think, is imagined as a way of kind of buying them off. And in the, in the 90s, people talked about, like, I don't care if we give money to, money to yeshivas, like, just, you know, have them, 
you know, basically do that, and maybe they do marriage, divorce, and burial, and then leave me alone the rest of the time. And there's been a kind of continuous encroachment since then, plus a financial crisis with the funding of, of Yeshivot and, and a large segment of the population that isn't pro productive. Um, but it, that, I think, is a result of the population, not just political fragmentation. It's also a, a result of a legacy, not just the, the lack of a, of a two-party system. But you're right that in a two-party system, we have nearly 20%, 25% of the American population that dreams of a Christian theocracy. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yet, it's, it, America is still a pretty secular democracy, and they, they seek to influence government as much as possible. Um, they, they control local school boards and things like that, mm -hmm. but the, at the federal level, they can't, they can't win federal offices easily. And so that, that does, in some ways, keep, keep the theocrats at bay. Um, but I don't think that's the only factor in Israel, unfortunately. Yes? Um, was there a perception at the founding of the state that orthodoxy would wither and that socialism and liberalism would be the dominant uh, aspect? And were they surprised when that withered and the orthodox grew? I would say no and yes. I don't think they thought orthodoxy would wither at the founding of the state because it was so small and, and unimportant that they just didn't see it as anything other than a symbolic community of Jewish cultural legacy. No one really thought that this was going to be a serious problem. And with the pro sort of the progress of the 20th century, no one really thought that we were going to see what we mentioned on the first class, this major uptick of religious affiliation, but especially religious fundamentalism starting in the 1980s. This was not predicted by anyone. Um, people did think that by the year 2000, you know, not only would we have like all sorts of fantastic spaceships, but that we were going to see the end of religious traditionalism as we know it. And instead, what we've seen is a resurgence of it in this new and, and, and very, very confrontational manner that is putting up a substantial threat, a substantial challenge to the, the notion of secular democracy. It's, it's actually the, 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 the child of secular democracy. It's a subset of the population that isn't content with what secular democracy has to offer. And it, it presents this challenging alternative, but it's one that can lead to violence or when involved in the state, lead to coercion that causes serious rifts within religious communities. The number of Israelis who have negative feelings about Judaism because of the power of the Rabbanut, I believe is much, much larger than it would be if there was no Rabbanut. And there was just simply people freely doing what they want within the personal space of a, a, a you know, private life that's accorded by a secular democracy. But it actually creates a, a circumstance that's bad for the internal dynamics of the state and, and bad for the religion itself. It becomes unpopular. And that wasn't predicted at all. Yes? Two things. One is uh, timely. The, the chief rabbi, rabbi of Israel is actually going to be in Orange County on Monday, uh, Steve. Uh, and he's the Ashkenaz uh, chief rabbi. Just, just interesting. He's going to be here. He's going to be at uh, 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 Habad and Yorban. So I just wanted to note that. Mm. But, but the point I wanted to make is that, and it kind of ties into what, what you said, is that here in America, where we have this division from church and state, you have a flourishing of religion. We're considered perhaps the most religious country in the world. Whereas in Israel, you have the opposite effect. They had the privilege of meeting with the head of the reform movement, rather, the head of the reform movement in Israel a few months ago. 
and he uh, he said that 80% of the since Jews in Israel consider themselves secular and non-religious. Mm. And the effect, unlike the United States, where you have this flourishing of religion, is the diminishment of religion, because you have a small, highly resented group who are considered the religious, who are very, very resented, and everybody else wants to disassociate themselves from religion which is identified with this small group. So they consider themselves secular Jews. And it's a monumental barrier to, for instance, the reform and conservative movements in Israel who are having great difficulty winning the hearts and minds of people who want to dis disassociate themselves from religion entirely. Yeah, and th that's why I think that this is, it's, it's bad for religion, actually. Anant Hoffman gave a great talk at Lehi last year, and she, she spoke about being um, a young Israeli woman exposed for the first time to American Judaism in California, and she just it blew her mind. She'd never imagined this kind of range of options and opportunities for religious expression. And the kind of resentment developed by that, especially in a society where people otherwise expect democratic representation. And you have this minority, but it's not such a small minority, right? But a minority that can then tell you who you can marry. This, this is a, a, a serious concern. Um, and one that does affect both the health of the state and, and, and the health of Judaism in that state. And, and the, the sad ironies of that being a, a state with so many Jews in it and having that kind of problem, I think is serious. Yeah. You cited a number of areas of social policy where the majority of Israelis would have things be done otherwise. They, Israel is a democracy. They have elections. And yet the majority of people have not been able to bring about the kind of uh, social changes that, um, that you were talking about here. Is this because Israeli politics is so dysfunctional? I mean, Israeli politics is definitely a complicated thing, but it's, it's one thing to have certain policies in place um, or that you want to see in place with your party. It's another to try to get rid of a whole section of the government, right, a whole ministry. That's extremely difficult, especially in a system where you have to have a coalition. So getting rid of the rabbit or radically changing their, their, their policies, that's very hard to do. The, the revenue, is up, it's up to them to decide their policies. The government, I mean, the, most of the society gets to decide is they just don't want to have a revenue anymore. And that, that, that move is much more, requires tremendous political will. And it's, it's very complicated, I think, in a coalition government to do that. Um, and, and then they're not, the revenue the is not actually responsible for representing the will of the majority. They're responsible, as they see it, for representing Torah. I mean, if, if the ballot box isn't the way out of some of these problems, then what is? I mean, it's a good question. I think eventually the ballot box will have to play more of a role, but um, with, with established institutions of a government, that's, that's really different than just with particular laws. Particular laws can be challenged, whereas a, a, a whole government institution is very hard to undo. Yes, Susan? Um, ha, uh, given the recent um, Jewish state bill, all of these issues must have been coming to the forefront for many people, scaring people on both kind of both sides of the issues. Where is that? Where does that stand? Or what? What was the reaction in Israeli society um, on both sides, either side? Um, you know, with with. I mean, because if you have a Jewish state, then the notion of secular democracy 
kind of well, excluded. They, they worded the Jewish state bill in, in, in various drafts in a more complicated way where they, they, they wanted to make it both Jewish but yet compatible with the idea of a, of a constitutional democracy. Um, I mean, I'm not really an expert on this issue more than what you can read in Haaretz, but the, the interesting to me was the reaction in the United States where increasingly federations and Jewish communities in North America are really concerned and as they get more informed about it, really disturbed by the lack of Jewish religious freedom in Israel. And when you have agencies in the United States who see it as their job to be advocates for Jews around the world, and they realize that in Israel you have something that you don't find in many other places, which is people potentially being imprisoned for exercising their religious freedom to just like perform marriage ceremonies. Um, when people feel religiously unfree in that manner, they, they actually, these same organizations that see it as part of their mission to be advocates for the state of Israel, also are in this paradoxical situation where to be advocates for religious freedom in Israel, for Jewish religious freedom in Israel, they, they have to resist the policies of the state. And so it, it touches on that kind of tension, and I think that that's going to be um, an interesting one in the, in the 21st century. Yes? Well, I just wanted to say, uh, my perspective is that um, Israel is a strong democracy, and the, the power to do all this was given to the Rabbinut by the state. And one of the reasons that they gained this power is for many years, most of the Israelis were very secular, and they didn't really care. So that was not a political issue. That's why you say is this any political system not functioning? It's functioning, but just they just over the years, gain more and more power in the political system because Israelis could care less if, you know, the Orthodox say that this is the way Kashrut should be or not because they didn't care about Kashrut anyhow. But now it's just getting more and more, they got more and more power and more and more, and more Israelis got tired of this. And you can see in the last elections that Yair Lapid got so many votes running on this uh, agenda that to get rid of the of the orthodox and the coalition and actually he succeeded he did succeed briefly, yeah. Briefly, okay. And, and he didn't have a lot of, uh, of, of discipline within, in, within his own house on that. So he had a particular attitude towards the Badak Safim and also towards the Rabbanut that wasn't ultimately shared by some of the other members right. of, of his party. Right, it wasn't shared yes. said, yeah, okay, yeah. I'm saying, but, but it can be solved in the political system. It's not like uh, you see other fundamental states that the, the um, fundamentalists take over by power, by force or something. It wasn't force, it was just a political system. This happened and it can be fixed. And it's actually, there are a lot of seeds that, as you say, a lot of people are against the marriage controlled by government. And there are some seeds that are starting to, to grow some movement against things. And it will take some time, but it has to be bad enough to, yeah. to want to fix it. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's interesting. And, and getting to the point that it's bad enough that a people want to fix it. Yeah, I mean, I can hear some difference of opinions here among the Israelis, but it is true. There's an element of being a little bit asleep at the helm because they didn't care that much. They said, oh, so I'm like, this rabbi versus that rabbi wants to be at my wedding? I don't care anyway. Right. You know, if I marry another Israeli and they marry me, fine. Um, and then as they started having more and more problems with divorce, it was an issue, but they were a little asleep at the wheel. But there's also the question of um, more and more Israelis 
becoming religious in a manner that falls outside of the spectrum of, of the Rabbanut. And so they, they start to put forth a kind of challenge of alternative forms of, uh, of, of a hecture of kashrut. Like, I know you guys um, met with an organization in Israel doing that, wanting to have alternative weddings, wanting to do alternative, because they're not secular and they're not Haredi. The growth of that segment creates more agitation for change in the power that is accorded uh, to, to the Rabbanut or to Haredi members of the Rabbanut. Um, but it's true, Israel is a robust democracy, and I think this might be one of the defining challenges in the coming decades to how, how democratic it, it will be, which is not just about religious freedom broadly, though it is, but also, also about Jewish religious freedom. We have to wrap it up, but uh, just one quick thing. So Rabbi Lau is coming. So should we encourage our group to go? And if so, two questions for you. What questions should we ask? But also, uh, can you tell us how he was selected in this process? We understand. I mean, it's an election, but there actually was, a, it, you know, ultimately there was a, there was a kind of came down to two members, one who was much more liberal and one, one and Rabbi Lau who was much more conservative, and, and he ended up winning. But it was the first time that we saw, I believe, the first time that we really saw a contest like that um, for the Ashkenazi rabbi. That, that's that's a, an Israeli election. As far as I know, it's a national referendum. But didn't he say he, no. he, was in, he inherited this role as well, even though it was a formal election? He was, but it was, it's, still, it's still elected. I mean, but okay, yeah. well, we'll have to look it up. Any questions we should ask Rabbi Lau? Gosh, I don't know. I, you'll get a list of questions by email. Do you want to foment a... Yes. We're going to have an exciting... Uh, yeah, can I hear one thing from, from Mrs. Wilner before we go? Protest your the way you say the, uh, the, uh, not the Haredim, And that's, I think that's why that's a complicated transformation. But people don't understand it. You can't just throw it away and stop it. Okay, so uh, thank you for this uh, very <laughs> thank you.